Well, we do find ourselves in Romans chapter 9, and so you can go ahead and open up your copy of God's Word to Romans chapter 9, verses 18 through 23. Romans 9, 18 through 23, and we'll be looking at this uh, text this morning, and then we'll be uh, studying it. But let us read Romans 9, 18 through 23. If you haven't been with us in a while, we do ask that you would uh, find uh, that, this text, because this is where we're going to spend a bulk of our time studying and understanding your word. Romans 9, verse 18. So then, he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to make his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? And thus ends this reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. Well, have you ever heard of the so-called problem of evil? The problem of evil, it's one of the questions that atheists love to ask Christians. The question goes something like this. If God is all good and if God is all powerful, how come we see so much evil in this world? But if evil supposedly provides evidence against God, then shouldn't goodness count as evidence for him? And wouldn't that count as evidence against atheism? Just even think about the categories of good and evil for a second. If we're all happy little accidents, then there should be no ought and no ought not. Really, there should be no good and evil. It's just simply survival of the fittest. And yet, many people say there's good and evil. And if a good God doesn't exist, how come there's so much good in this world? The near constant experience of goodness demands an explanation and points to a creator and a sustainer. Randy Alcarn says, much of the goodness of this world, such as the beauty of a flower or the grandeur of a waterfall or the joy of an otter at play, serves no more practical purpose than great art. It does, however, serve a high purpose of filling us with delight, wonder, and gratitude. I talk to non-Christians all the time who thank God for the healing of a loved one or for safety on the interstate after a close call with a semi-truck. Because innately, we have an impression that God gifts us with life. Every breath we take belongs to God. 
No one is thankful to time. No one is thankful to chance or, or natural selection. When was the last time you said, man, I thank God for natural selection? Or I think natural selection. Sorry, I can't even say it right, right? Even the fact that we don't question the normal goodness of life reflects that good is the norm and the evil is the exception. Don't evil and suffering grab our attention precisely because they are not the norm in our lives. Think about it. You get the flu because you normally don't have the flu. We break an arm that normally remains what? Whole and unbroken. Our shock at evil testifies really to the predominance of good. And so if anyone points to the horrors of evil, they unwittingly testify to the normality of goodness. When a natural disaster hits, 99.99999% of the world remains untouched. Good days in life are normal days in life. And without God, the world would be amoral, with no objective goodness and no, no evil even. So how come there's all this goodness if there isn't God? It certainly doesn't come from nothing. Goodness certainly isn't the impersonal universe throwing, throwing goodness around by chance. It's not Mother Nature giving us goodness. Goodness comes from a good God. A good, glorious creator God who reigns as king over all, who is always absolutely free to do whatever he wishes, whenever he wishes it. In fact, when Moses asked to see the glory of God, way back in Exodus chapter 33, God says this, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh, the self-existent one. That means that to know God in all his glory is to know him as what? In all of his goodness. To delight in God is to trust that he is good all the time, and all the time he is good. And that he is Yahweh. He is the self-existent one, the one without beginning, the one without end, powerful enough to accomplish everything that God wants to accomplish, even make a sin-cursed world mostly good. If God is that good and he is that sovereign, then God also tells us in Exodus 33, as he tells Moses, I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I will be compassionate to whom I will have compassion. That's the text that Paul quotes in Romans 9. And even though every man, every man, woman, and every child sins, even though we fall short of God's perfection, and even though God ought to punish us right away for sin, our good and sovereign God is so often merciful and gracious with us, isn't he? And that has been Paul's point in Romans chapter 9. God is a good and powerful God. He is gracious and merciful whenever it's best for him to be gracious and merciful. But that also means 
God chooses not to show mercy to some. He chooses to punish some for their own sins, even hardening them in unbelief. See, Paul has been telling us some pretty hard truths, hasn't he? Uh, Go back to Romans 9, verse 11. Speaking of twins who had yet to be born, he says this, of Jacob and Esau, Romans 9, verse 11, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of God who calls. Rebecca was told the older will serve the younger. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And this hatred, this hatred isn't Hatred like our hatred, angry hatred, but a sovereign, free choice to not choose Esau as an object of his mercy. Compared to election, to not choose is like hatred. Another word to call this is called reprobation. We talked about it last week, and some of you are asking for some definitions, so I'm going to throw it up on the screen. We have a definition of reprobation. If you want to write it down, you can. If you don't want to, that's fine, too. But this is a definition that uh, Wayne Grudem writes. Reprobation, what exactly is it? It's the flip side of election. Election is God's sovereign choice of those who would come to know him and belong to his eternal family. Reprobation is a sovereign decision of God before creation to pass over some persons in sorrow, deciding not to save them and to punish them for their sins and thereby to manifest his justice. It is a sovereign decision of God, not a result of him looking down the long corridors of time and saying, you know what? That person isn't going to choose me, so I'm going to choose them to be reprobate. No, it is God's sovereign decision before creation to pass over some and in sorrow, in great sorrow, deciding not to save them and to punish them for their sins so that his justice could be seen. And so both, God's choosing some to salvation and letting others remain in sin, both the election and reprobation are ultimately God's work. And so Paul writes very clearly in Romans 9, verse 18, these words. Look at this verse. So then, God has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Now, some at this point don't just wonder if God is fair, like we talked about last week. That was kind of the the argument that Paul wanted to bring up in verse 14. Is God fair? Is he just? But some wonder now if God is actually good. So the question gets asked in a very condescending way. Verse 19, you will say to me then, why does he still find fault For who can resist his will? If if it's true that God has mercy on whomever he wills, and if it is true that God hardens whomever he wills, who can resist God's will? And so, so why in the world does God still find anyone at fault? That's the question. 
Some cry, it's not fair. Perhaps God is not good. But as creatures who receive so much of God's goodness, like we talked about earlier, there are three reasons why we shouldn't doubt God's goodness. Why we shouldn't doubt God's goodness. I'm going to go this really quick. Number one, this world is significantly full of goodness. So why we shouldn't doubt God's goodness? The world is significantly full of goodness. I mean, just take a step back. And even though we sin every day, even though we get sinned against on most days, marvel at the goodness of God in your life, the sustaining grace or gift of God in your life. Marvel at the beauty and goodness of his creation. And remember, God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. So the world is significantly full of goodness. So, so don't doubt his goodness. Second reason we shouldn't doubt his goodness. Mankind is not morally good or morally neutral. And that's specifically applied to this, this concept that we've been wrestling through of election and reprobation. So as we wonder if, if God is good to have mercy on some and, and to harden others, let us not imagine humanity as clamoring to get to God, clawing their way to heaven, and God says, no, not you, and pushes them back down. That is not the picture of humanity that we find in scriptures. The fact of the matter is, we are not born neutral. We are actually born in sin. I mean, just go back to Romans chapter 5, verse 12, and, and read that verse with me. Romans 5, verse 12. God's word says very clearly in Romans 5, verse 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Get that? Death came in through Adam. We all have inherited. And it's not just Adam's sin that we have kind of inherited to us, like, you know, the color of eyes or the color of hair that we have. But we've actually inherited not just sin, but we actually all sin. So we're sinners by nature and in deed. And God's verdict is very clear. Go back to Romans chapter 3, verse 9. Romans chapter 3, verse 9. He says very clearly, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands God. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Look, it's not like humanity is a neutral blank slate. And God and Satan simply have to make their cases between a neutral humanity and God says, well, here's why you should follow me because I'm good and I'm going to give you more things. And Satan says, no, here's why you should follow me because you're going to have a lot more fun in this life if you follow me. You know, it's not like that's going on and we just kind of have to make a choice. All have sinned. No one understands. No one does good. And you might say, you know what? I know some people who are just good people or, or you just try to be good people. They're not Christians, but they just, they're, they're, they're good people. Perhaps that is the most prideful type of person of all, to imagine that you could be good apart from God is incredibly prideful. And that brings up a third point why we should never doubt God's goodness. Mankind is prone to prideful idolatry. Because what does God say of humanity in Romans 3, verse 18? 
There's no fear of God before their eyes. And what's the beginning of wisdom? Trying to be a good person? It's the fear of God. We fear loss of comfort often more than we fear God. We, we think we're, we're working for family trips, fun activities, a nicer house more than we work for God. And so this idea of just be a good person is not only morally impossible because of our sinful actions, it's actually impossible because most of the time we want to find our highest delight and we have our greatest fears on idols of the heart, things that we want and put in the place of God, things that we think will give us hope or happiness or significance or security other than God. And yet, in spite of our inclination towards evil, towards pride, towards idolatry, the fact that the world is still full of goodness as a norm shows us without a doubt God is good all the time. And all the time, God is good. And when he is merciful to some, in spite of ourselves, it makes his mercy that much more astounding dare I say, good. So Paul has been building up his point in this passage that God's sovereign free will is to do whatever he desires at any point, and it is ultimate. But also, God's sovereign free will is always good and glorious. As Paul answers yet another question that seems to doubt the goodness of God we're going to see two reasons why God's sovereign free will is always good. Two reasons why God's sovereign free will is always good. Even as we might question, like Paul writes in Romans 9, 19, why does God still find fault? For who can resist his will? I mean, this doesn't seem fair. Is God perhaps not even good? Paul answers with two reasons why God's sovereign free will is always good. Why we can trust the goodness of God even when we experience heartbreak. Maybe a loved one who continues in unbelief. Why God's goodness is trustworthy and perfectly compatible with his ultimate sovereign free will. At this point, we have to realize there are two ways to question God. One leans into trusting him, and the other remains skeptical. The Romans 9, 19 question is the skeptical one, but I think it's helpful for us to see an example of the right way to question God. And it's often found in the Psalms. So I want you to turn to Psalm 77. Turn to Psalm 77. Psalm 77 is a psalm of lament. And in the Psalms, we get this glorious example of how to question God well. In spite of overwhelming amounts of goodness, we do live in a fallen world, a world that is under God's curse for sin, and people will disappoint. 
People will discourage and people will tear you down. Nations will war against nations. Civil wars are real. Diseases will ravage. Pain will linger in your body. And in our darker moments, we are right to ask God, God, what are you doing? But we are to do so humbly and trusting, expressing our hatred for the pain and the suffering, but leaning on him for strength. Just like we see in Psalm 77. Just listen to the raw emotion that is mixed with trust. Read verse 1. Psalm 77, verse 1. I cry aloud to God, aloud to God, and he will hear me. See the trust there? In the day of my trouble, I seek the Lord. In the night, my hand is stretched out without wearying. Oh, my soul refuses to be comforted. When I remember God, I moan. When I meditate, my spirit faints. Selah. You hold my eyelids open. I am so troubled that I cannot speak. This is despair in its deepest of forms. And in his doubt, in his inability to speak, in his inability to sleep, as he's troubled and struggling again and again, what does he say? Verse 5, he comes to God. He says, I consider the days of old, the years long ago. I said, let me remember my song in the night. Let me meditate in my heart. Then my spirit made a diligent search. Will the Lord spurn forever and never again be favorable? Has his steadfast love forever ceased? Are his promises at an end for all time Has God forgotten to be gracious? Has he in anger shut up his compassion? Selah. See, instead of skeptically doubting God, he chooses to remember his character and he chooses to remember his power even as he's asking his question, what's going on, God? Are you going to stop? Are you never going to show me compassion again? Is your anger never going to stop? What is going on here? And then I said, verse 10, I will appeal to this, to the years of the right hand of the Most High. I will remember the deeds of Yahweh. Yes, I will remember your wonders of old. I will ponder all your work and meditate on your mighty deeds. Your way, O God, is holy. What God is great like our God? You are the God who works wonders. You have made known your might among the peoples. Oh, beloved, this is how you pray and question God. You confess how you're feeling, the deepest, darkest moment of your heart, and you confess your confusion, but you also proclaim, I have nowhere else to turn but to you. Where could I turn to help but to you? Because there is nowhere to turn that is more helpful than you. And so with that good questioning in mind, go back to Romans 9. As you wrestle with some of the most difficult questions regarding sovereignty over salvation, 
as you ponder what it means that God is sovereign, even over reprobation, even over not choosing some for eternal life, and as you question God, question like the psalmist. Express pain over losing a loved one, over the unbelief of a child. Express pain and plead with God for mercy and for grace in his or her life, and do so always trusting in the goodness of God. Now, there's also a wrong way to question God. A questioning of God or the heavy dose of skepticism, almost like you're accusing God. And some hear of election and God's sovereign free will, and they think, how in the world does this square with my free will? And some will even say, if I were God, I would be completely fair and give everyone an equal cho choice to choose or to not choose salvation. Some even try to change God and say things like, well, God isn't actually in control of much of anything in creation. He, he set up this world. He gives us then sovereign free will, and he wound it up like a clock and just lets it go, and, you know, I guess it is what it is. That is not the picture of God that we see in scriptures again and again and again. And the more you doubt in skepticism, doubting even God's goodness, the more Paul has some sharp words for us. And so the first reason why sovereign free will of God is always good, number one, he is a good and sovereign creator. He is a good and sovereign creator. Number one, he is a good and sovereign creator. You see, God is the one who made us, who sustains us, and who alone is said to have totally uninfluenced sovereign free will to do whatever he wants. He is the one who has mercy on whomever he wills. He is the one who hardens whomever he wills. Verse 18 is very clear on that. And so Paul imagines what you might say in verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And he answers a skeptic with a firm rebuke in verse 20. But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Well, what does molded say to its molder? Why have you made me like this? Part of knowing God is to know that there is a distinction between you as the creature and God as the creator. And we stand firmly in the creature category all the time. We don't pretend to be able to make things out of nothing. So who are we to doubt the sovereignty and goodness and power of the one who made us? When Paul writes, the man answers back to God as he does in verse 20. This isn't a simple conversation. This is a rude talking back to prove that you're right and God's wrong. It's that rebellious teenage style talking back to your parents. That's what he has in mind. This is the rebellious questioning of a skeptic who might say, oh my God, it gives me absolute free will. And so who is, what is this? If God is truly saving and electing those whom he wants, and if he's truly hardening those whom he wants, then why does he still find fault? And you speak with a good deal of skepticism towards God and his goodness. Paul talks to you. He says, who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? rebellious teenager. 
What does molded say to its molder? Oh, why have you made me like this? So Paul starts to paint the picture of what we are. We're pots. We're molded, and God is the molder. He makes us like a potter makes a clay pot. And the same sun that hardens the clay also molds it into whatever he wants. And so the picture continues as Paul quotes a common theme from the Old Testament of this potter and the, and the pot. Verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? Of course, the potter has every right to make out of clay whatever he desires. I mean, no one's sticking up for clay rights here to made it into a beautiful pottery only and never a dish for pig slop. There's no such thing as clay rights. It's an absurd picture. The pot turning to the potter while spinning on the pottery wheel saying to the potter, you can't make me like this. I mean, this is crazy speak and it's meant to be crazy speak. Although we see so much, or although we are so much greater than a pot in the potter's hand, compared to a sovereign creator God, really it's an accurate description. Like a pot. He's like the potter. Ultimately, it paints the picture of God as the creator who can do whatever he wants with us. And that includes verse 18. He has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills. Or in the language of verse 21, has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? So who is in charge of election and reprobation? Is it based on our free choice? No, it's God. Notice God uses the phrase, the same lump, right? He makes up the same lump, one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use. What does that tell us about all of humanity, even those whom God does not choose? We're all made in his image. We're all the same substance. We all have the same eternal properties, soul and body. And so Paul's point is, no one can talk back to God. We're all like simple pots to God, whether we're made for honorable use or dishonorable use. And it is absurd to think that the pot knows better than the potter. So do not answer back to So Paul reminds us that it is not safe to pretend like we're God, to think that we are the highest and best part of creation. We are not free to doubt God's goodness or his power. We are not free to make God into whoever we want him to be, into something he patently is not. He alone is the sovereign and good creator God. And as sovereign creator, he can choose to save some and harden others. Remember, humanity isn't just neutral. We're all guilty, condemned before God, like, like prisoners on death row. The whole world is like a prisoners all in a prison, all on death row. 
Literally, everyone you meet is like a prisoner on death row. And when God pardons us, pours out his wrath on Christ in our place, softens our dead hearts, gives us faith, then we rejoice in his mercy and grace that we don't deserve. But we don't turn to God and say, how dare you not pardon those other people on death row? Who does that? Because he's the creator. And all his character is always good, even in his choices to save some. So he promises all things, including election and reprobation, works out together for the good of those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Now at this point, some may still say, okay, I get it. God is God. I'm not. I shouldn't question him. But why are some people chosen and others not? Do at least we get an answer about that? Are we given a reason at all? Actually, yes, we are. Verses 22 and 23, we're going to see the reason why God chooses some and hardens others and is still good is that he intentionally reveres, reveals his character. Point number two, he intentionally reveals his character in his saving choices. He intentionally reveals his character. It's through his work in salvation that God intentionally reveals his character. Remember Exodus chapter 34, probably one of the most famous couple of verses where God reveals who he is. Exodus 34, verse 6 and 7. He says, I am Yahweh. I am the self-existent one. That's what Yahweh means, right? I am who I am. I am the, the one who is before and, and always will be. I am the I am. I am Yahweh. And what does he say as he continues to explain who he is to, to Moses? I am Yahweh, Yahweh a God, merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, the children's children to the third and fourth generation. You see, to know God, to know God as Yahweh, then, is to know God's attributes. When God himself explains who he is, he tells us a list of attributes, of characteristics of who he is. He is perfection and the sum total of all of his attributes, even uncomfortable attributes, you know, attributes like holiness and perfection. These are uncomfortable because we are not holy and we are not perfect and we have to come to God not being holy and not being perfect and realize that his holiness and perfection says, you can't come before me. And so we're confronted with the perfection of his attributes of holiness, but we also see that God is just. I mean, he says of himself, I will by no means clear the guilty. And so even the just exercise of his wrath is part of who God is. And how can you know God's perfect justice, even his wrath, if it weren't for sin and if it weren't for sinners? So God, in his infinite wisdom, as the sovereign creator, intentionally reveals his character by choosing some to be his children 
and by hardening others. And the first element of God's character that Paul highlights for us in Romans chapter 9 is wrath. It's wrath. Let's pick Paul's argument back up in verse 21 again. Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? Two times he mentions that wrath is the reason why there is election and why there is reprobation. God needed to show his wrath. And part of what makes these verses so challenging isn't their lack of clarity. It's the fact that people don't like what it says. Some read this verse and they accuse God of being some sort of ogre if it were true. I mean, after all, who desires to show his wrath? That's literally what it says. Do you see that? What if God desiring to show his wrath? I mean, who desires to show his wrath? I mean, don't most of us try to hide wrath? God desires to show his wrath? Oh, beloved, we try to hide our wrath because our wrath is often self-serving and obviously sinful. But God's wrath is pure, holy, right. It's even good. You know, it's ironic sometimes when you hear politicians talk about how they hate the death penalty, how they need to abolish the death penalty until someone commits some heinous crime and then all of a sudden they're for the death penalty. And that's because punishment is supposed to fit the crime. And that longing in your heart for justice, to be vindicated when people slander you, all of that shows us that we intuitively want justice. And part of justice is just, fair, wrath. To know God is a good judge who justly delivers wrath is part of what it means to know God, period. And since we all sin, our natural standing before God is very simple. We are naturally objects of wrath. But how could we know God's good wrath if, it, if God hadn't, what does he say? Verse 22, what if God, desiring his wrath, to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? If God had not endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction, how would we know wrath if we're objects of mercy? And so God's sovereign free will in election and reprobation reveals his good wrath. It also reveals his power. Look, look down at the verse, right? Clearly, the second attribute that God wants to communicate as he exercises his sovereign free will and salvation is power. What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? But 
how is God's power more clearly known through vessels of wrath that are prepared for destruction? Well, I think we get a clue earlier in the chapter how God's power is seen even as he hardens hearts. Go to verse 17, Romans 9, verse 17. It says, For Scripture says to Pharaoh, For this very purpose I have raised you up, that I might show my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills, and he hardens whomever he wills, because he hardened Pharaoh again and again and again. As Pharaoh's heart was hardened, it gave opportunity for the ten plagues of Egypt to come into this world and for generations to know the fame and the power of Yahweh. But what was done on an international scale with the leader of the most powerful country in the world of Egypt and Pharaoh, likewise, is accomplished in the hearts of every single unbeliever. How is God's power displayed in verse 22? What if God, designed to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction? See, God patiently sustains vessels that he knows will become objects of his wrath in order that his power in finally doling out eternal justice could be known to all. It's kind of like that saying, he gives them enough rope to hang themselves. His patience with unbelievers eventually makes his wrath even more justified as they heap sin upon sin upon sin. And thus his power to judge anyone who rebels against him is known throughout the whole world. I mean, if you don't believe me, just listen to the end of Revelation Listen to the end of Revelation. At the end of the great tribulation, Jesus returns on a white horse full of power and wrath. I mean, just listen to Revelation 19, 1 and 2, and then 11 through 16. There's a multitude in heaven crying out, Hallelujah! Salvation and glory and power belong to our God. For his judgments are true and just. For he has judged the great prostitute and corrupted, who corrupted the earth with her immorality and has avenged on her the blood of his servants. Verse 11, And then I saw a heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, the one sitting on it, is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood, and the name by which he is called is the Word of God. And the armies of heaven, arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. From his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations, and he will rule them with a rod of iron, and he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of the God of God the Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh he has a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. If that isn't power on display, I don't know what is. Even as God dealt patiently with rebellion of mankind in that great day when most continue to doubt if God is real, most continue to rebel and unbelief or simply imagine their own way to be right with God is better. Or worse yet, see themselves as the final judge of their own lives and act like little gods. God's power will be vividly on display at the end 
of his patience. Well, that brings us really to our third element of his character that we see in Romans 9. Patience, wrath, power, and patience. Go back to, or turn to 2 Peter 3. 2 Peter 3, verse 9. As we wrestle through these concepts of election and reprobation, I'm sure some have thought, well, wouldn't it have been better for the unbeliever, my unbelieving son, my unbelieving grandpa, to have never been born than to suffer in hell? I mean, that's a good question, right? I mean, who hasn't asked that question? Wouldn't it have been better for them never to exist? And perhaps in strictly human terms, as our heart mourns the ongoing unbelief of our loved ones, then, then yes, it would have been better. But we must not let that cause us to doubt God's goodness. For if God had not allowed sin to enter the world, if God had not given us the distinction between vessels of wrath and vessels of mercy, if we had only and always been good, uh, seen good without sin, we couldn't know God's patience, could we? Patience is only known when there is something to be patient with. And even as our loved ones remain in unbelief, we can be grateful for God's patience. Look at 2 Peter 3, 9. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Well, clearly, we should be motivated by God's delayed judgment. We should pray, we should plead, and we should share the gospel with those who do not know Christ as their Lord and Savior. Patience is just more opportunities for God's gospel call to be heard and to be received and to be embraced. And so Peter can also write First Peter, uh, 2 Peter 3.15 and count the patience of our Lord as salvation. See, the longer God patiently endures with sinners who ought to immediately receive God's wrath, the more clearly we understand God is a patient God, even if that patience never results ultimately in salvation of some. And that's Paul's point in Romans chapter 9. Go back there, Romans 9, verse 22 and 23. See, what if God, desiring to show his wrath, and to make known his power has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy. See, for those of us who know God as Father, who experience the eternal lock-tight reality of God's saving love in Jesus Christ, we see God's patience, and it catapults our praise of his glory, of all his goodness that passes before us because we are vessels of his mercy. So we actually see a fourth attribute of God seen in God's sovereignty over our salvation. Number four, mercy, wrath, power, patience, and mercy is on display. Mercy, very simply, is not getting what we deserve. Remember, vessels of mercy and vessels of wrath are made out of the same lump. That shouldn't cause us to doubt the goodness of God. That should cause us to explode in praise for his undeserved mercy. There's nothing in us that caused us, uh, God to be merciful towards us. 
We are certainly not deserving of his patience, of the Holy Spirit giving us eyes to see our great need for a Savior. We are certainly not deserving of the faith that has been granted to us by the Holy Spirit. We are certainly not deserving of what Christ accomplished by dying on the cross for our sins. Mercy is God waiting patiently until at the perfect time we can turn and trust in Christ as our Lord and Savior and brought into his eternal family. In fact, the Christian seems to be at the center of God's purpose in election and reprobation. God allows sin. God is patient with unbelievers so that we, vessels of mercy, can know Him, can know His attributes. Without sin, without those who reject Christ, we couldn't fully know God. That's so clear when you look at the flow, right? Look at verse 22. What if God, desiring to show his wrath, to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy? In God's abundant, undeserved mercy, we can know him. And don't think that this means we know some facts about God. It's not just facts that we know, absolutely not. We start on the path of knowing and adoring God, of worshiping and cherishing God, of delighting in God, because we are vessels of his mercy. That's God's purpose in his sovereign free will and in his goodness. He sets up the world so that we can know, delight in, and worship him because he alone is glorious and he alone is worthy of praise. And so our fifth attribute is glory. Wrath, power, patience, mercy, glory. He says he has endured with much patience, vessels of wrath, prepared for destruction, verse 23, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. Two times we are saved to know God's glory, it says. You see, God alone is infinitely pleasing to our soul. He is infinitely delightful to ponder, to behold, and to worship. For the one and the only God is glorious beyond measure. And what is glory, you might ask? We get glimpses of it as we experience his goodness in life. Psalm 19.1 tells us, The heavens declare the glory of God. And so as you go out camping far beyond the lights of the city, and as you see millions of stars, and you say, Wow, that's a glimpse of the glory of God. You cannot sit there and tell me you know nothing of the glory of God. For in a sense, your smallness in the vast world speaks to God's glory and grandeur. The amazing delight of falling in love with your spouse even speaks to the glory and grandeur of God. Of holding a new baby in your arms speaks to the glory and grandeur and goodness of God. That's a reflection of his glory. The incredible gift of delicious food reflects his glory. Or the comfort that comes from reading a good book is a reflection of his glory. The only true glorious God created us to see his glory in everything. He created us. And he created all the good things that we experienced to show us who he is. 
But tragically, he also tells us that so many among our human race experience these same exact things that we experience and exchange the glory of God for a lie. Right? That's how Paul starts his letter in Romans 1. He says, For the wrath of God, Romans 1.18, is revealed from heaven against all the ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, and so they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man. Oh, beloved. You were made to see glory, and you were made to glory in God. And if you are sitting there and think, I just don't get it. I've never seen the glory of God before like that, but I really want to, then today is the day of your calling. Today is the day when you finally realize you were made not to exchange God's glory and get whatever you want, to get the things that you think will make you happy, but you were made to glory in God. And the best place for you to find his glory is in coming to Jesus Christ. For John 1.14 says, The word became flesh, and we have seen his glory. Glory is of the only Son from the Father, full of grace. And truth. So submit your life today to live for Christ above all and not yourself. It will mean some radical shifts on how you think. It will mean some radical shifts in how you act. It will mean walking a completely different path than the way you did because you now are focused on the glory of God in your life. For if you are a vessel of God's mercy, that means he has called us, he has justified us, he holds us secure, and he gives us a passion for his glory. Well, there's one final attribute to very quickly note. It's rich. Rich. I'm not talking about God being wealthy, though he made all the riches in the world, and they are like pennies in his economy. Look down at verse 23, Romans 9, verse 23, and notice the answer to our questions. Why does God endure with patience vessels of wrath? Why is he gracious with vessels of mercy? Why does God choose some and harden others? Verse 23 tells us, in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory. See, God wants Christians to see that he is rich, abounding in glory. In fact, I think that is part of what makes eternal life never boring. For we will forever dive deeper into the glories of the infinite God and never exhaust his glories. We can never exhaust the glories of God. He is rich beyond measure. And notice how he closes. It's this vast wealth of glory that God designed us to experience from eternity past. For we are those vessels of mercy. What does he say? Which he has prepared beforehand for glory. To know his 
glory. And all those glorious attributes of God are more clearly seen because God is absolutely and completely sovereign to do whatever he wants, whenever he wants. Even allow evil. Even show mercy to the undeserving. How God works in salvation is part of the goodness of God to help us know and to delight in him. Jonathan Edwards, the most, one of the most famous uh, theologians uh, to ever write on American soil, writes these words. It is proper that all parts of God's glory should shine forth, that every beauty should be proportionably radiant, that the beholder may have a proper notion of God. Thus, it is necessary that God's awful majesty, his authority, and dreadful greatness, justice, and holiness should be manifested. But this could not be unless sin and punishment had been decreed by God. Without them, God's glory and holiness would be faint. And if there were no sin, there would be no grace or mercy or forgiveness. So evil is necessary for the highest happiness of the creature and the completeness of God's communication for which he made the world. Because the creature's happiness is consistent in the knowledge of God and the sense of his love. The creature's happiness consists in the knowledge of God and the sense of his love. And if the knowledge of God be imperfect, the happiness of the creature must be proportionally imperfect. And so Paul gives us in Romans 9 the purpose of election and reprobation. It's to know God, to know his glory. So I ask, do you cherish his glory above all else? Are you enamored with the good things that the Lord gives in life, or do you immediately give glory to God for all of them? If there's so much good in life, isn't just that just a reflection of his glory? And even evil, that God uses to show us who he is, doesn't that make his grace in your life so much sweeter? Oh, may we be motivated to delight in and glory in our redeeming, good, and completely sovereign God. Let's pray. Oh, Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word. We thank you for the clarity with which it speaks and tells us of who you are. We thank you that you have increased our happiness, so to speak, by showing us who you are in your glories. Thank you for showing us the doctrines of election and reprobation. Thank you for showing us what it means that you show good, righteous, pure, clean wrath, and that you are powerful beyond measure, and that you then are capable of doing anything you say you're going to do, including keep us to the end, including working all things out for our good. Thank you that we can see a grace 
because of these things. Thank you that we can understand mercy because of these things. Thank you that we can understand mercy and grace and forgiveness in our lives and therefore praise you for your rich glory. We thank you and we praise you and we glorify your great name. In Jesus' name, amen.